Japan today is known around the world as a nation committed to peace and humanitarian aid. Much of this reputation arises from the experience of World War II, when Japanese armies committed atrocities around East Asia, and civilians on the home front in Hiroshima and Nagasaki suffered atomic bombings. In the wake of World War II, the Japanese people embraced Article 9, declaring that Japan would forever renounce war and never maintain military forces. But in fact, Japan has the second largest military in all of East Asia, behind only China. But they are known as the self-defense forces. So, how is it that a country committed to pacifism can still maintain one of the world's largest, strongest militaries? What is the background of the SDF? What do the SDF forces actually do? And what implications does the SDF have on Japanese defense spending and diplomacy? I'm Jerry. I'm Jackie. I'm Yusuke. And this is a Japan on the Record Special Student Podcast. We've heard about these self-defense forces, but what kind of things do they do in Japan today? Nowadays, they more or less natural disaster relief operation. For example, Japan does a tons of natural disasters like earthquakes, typhoon, and so on. Especially the self ground defense force is effective in dealing with this kind of operation. And also in the world, they more or less peacekeeping operation, especially in the Middle East and Africa. Like in Somalia, they're responsible for hunting the pirates and also providing protection for convoys in that area. So yeah, the Japanese self defense force is more or less a peacekeeping army that is not really an army. And as you mentioned, they're very famously after the Kobe earthquake or the Tohoku earthquake, they came in and give、uh, relief. Efforts, but in addition to participating in these military missions around the world, naturally the self-defense for natural disaster operation can be dated back to 1959 when the Isiwan typhoon struck Japan. And this typhoon is actually the strongest typhoon to have struck Japan since the Meiji period, and it caused a massive destruction all over Japan. As a result, the Japanese government decided to deploy the JGSDF to help rescue the people and also clear up the rebels. So afterwards, they also contributed to reconstruct Japan and eventually earned the experience that is very useful in the later days. But Of course, this seems somewhat controversial, right?、Uh, Japan's supposed to be this country with no war, and this Article Nine clause that renounces war is something we hear about a lot. So, what is the background of this Article Nine? The Japanese Constitution post-war period, Article Nine, drafted in 1946 and came into effect in 1947, clearly declared that aspiring sincerely to an international peace based on justice and order. The Japanese people forever renounce war as a sovereign right of the nation and the threat or use of force as means of settling international disputes. In order to accomplish the aim of the preceding paragraph, land, sea, and air forces, as well as other war potential, will never be maintained. The right of belligerence of the state will never be recognized. So, if Article Nine describes, as Jerry just said, renounces war and, and prohibits Japan from ever maintaining offensive military forces, how is it that these self-defense forces originate? The self-defense force is originally established in July first, nineteen fifty-four, but it can be dated back to nineteen fifty when the United States decided to join the Korean War. So after the Second World War, the U.S. occupation force, combined with a very minor Japanese domestic force, were responsible for defending Japan. However, in 1950, the United States decided to intervene in the Korean War, and this changed everything, because all the U.S. occupation force originally deployed in Japan was sent to the Korean Peninsula, which left Japan basically defenseless and eventually intensified the demand for self-defense. 
So in July 8, 1950, General MacArthur actually wrote a letter to Yoshida, the Japanese prime minister at that time. And in the letter, he mentioned that the need of a Japanese organized force to fill the vacuum after the departure of U.S. occupation force. So in one of the paragraphs, MacArthur wrote, I authorize your government to take the necessary measures to establish a national police reserve of 75,000 men and expand the existing apparatus strength of the personnel serving under the Maritime Safety Board by an additional 8,000. So this letter basically gave Japan the green light to set up a force to fill up the vacuum caused by the deployment of the American military away from Japan. As a result, the National Police Reserve, or in Japanese, the Keisatsu Yobitai, was established, and this is basically the predecessor of the Self-Defense Force. However, Although it is called a police reserve, some early evidence has shown that MacArthur had the plan to develop and expand it into a military organization that is capable of responding to direct and indirect small-scale aggression. So right after the National Police Reserve was set up, MacArthur immediately gave two orders to them. One of them is to locate in four main military areas approximately coinciding with those of the four divisions of the U.S. Army. This is probably very ordinary. The second one is to form a 1,500-man infantry division with the usual surface and technical support. Now, these orders have shown that the National Police Reserve was not only a police force, but would be a future self-defense force that is capable of defending against foreign threats. And very soon, the National Police Reserve did expand due to different reasons. For example, the Bloody May Day incident in 1952. Now, the incident made the Japanese government realize the need to expand the police reserve due to the fact that this is the first time the Japanese police had to use lethal force against protesters in the post-war period. So, after the incident, Japanese government decided to expand the National Police Reserve to 111,000 personnel and renamed it National Safety force and it's basically announced that the National Police Reserve is the self-defense force. So in 1954, the National Safety Force was reorganized as the Japanese self-defense force of nowadays. So the SDF force certainly have this kind of humanitarian mission, but they are also a military. And as you said, they're also being submitted to war zones, such as Iraq and Afghanistan, not without controversy, of course. So how is it that this Article 9, which is supposed to prevent offensive military capability, how is it that we have this Article 9 that prohibits Japan from ever having offensive military capability, still having military forces? Jerry, can you tell us a little bit about the background of Article 9 and what legal arguments are made to justify the existence of the self-defense forces. Sure. We can start by talking about the origin of the 1947 Japan Constitution. The 1947 Japan Constitution is a sort of a compromise between the U.S. occupation authority and the Japanese government at the time. It was put back and forth between the U.S. side and Japanese side on several sentences and several clauses of the Constitution. Most notably, the most controversial one is, of course, the Article 9. The Article 9 is more famous for its last revisal by the Japanese government chairman of the Committee on the Bill for Reversion of the Imperial Constitution, a diet member named Ashida Hitoshi. He revised the Constitution into the form we know nowadays, basically by adding two sentences, aspiring sincerely to an international peace based on justice and order, and the second sentence is, in order to accomplish the aim of the preceding paragraph. So he will later explain that... The adding of these two sentences give base grounds to the existence of the self-defense forces. But at that time, the conservative party, including Ashida Hitoshi himself, did not 
did not account for the creation of the self-defense forces. The creation of the self-defense forces, as Jackie has pointed out previously, is mostly as a U.S. military idea. It's an idea derived from General MacArthur during the Korean War period because most of the U.S. occupation forces were deployed in Korean Peninsula fighting off DPRK forces and Chinese voluntary forces. And that leaves Japan vulnerable to any possible communist incursions, whether domestic or foreign. So the idea was to create a police force, Jackie has already mentioned before, the National Police Reserve, to maintain order and maintain security domestically in Japan. But at that time, since Japan is still under U.S. occupation, SCAP has a over-constitutional power that can override any concerns or doubts from the Japanese diet. So the Japanese government can just receive direct orders from SCAP without being questioned by any diet members. And at that time, before the NPR was established, the leftists and the conservatives' opinions on whether to maintain a military force was actually very different from nowadays. The leftists actually was in favor in having a standing military force for Japan. The leader of the leftist movement, the founder of the JCP party, Nosoka Sanzo, at that time was also a member of the Diet, quoted that uh, there are wars that are just and there are wars that are unjust. Japan needs to have a military forces to fight off those unjust wars, those wars that basically accomplished by invading our homeland and uh, trumping our, our sovereignties. But the Conservative Party leader, the later Prime Minister Yoshida Shigeru, debated the argument by saying that regarding the article of the draft constitution concerning renunciation of war, it looks as though you think war based on the self-defense right of the state is justifiable, but I think it is harmful to admit such a thing. Most wars have been fought in cause of self-defense, so that it is better to wage no war at all in any cases. To acknowledge and justify a war in self-defense will only serve to invite another war and it will be harmful and unprofitable. But after the decision of the U.S. occupation forces on creating basically a standing military forces for Japan, the conservative party swiftly shifted their standing point on whether to have a military force or not. They quickly in favor the U.S. decision of having a military forces and speed up the process. So it sounds like the justification for the self-defense forces is a little bit just based on rhetoric. As long as we'll just say that they're not for offensive purposes, and that's why we can call them self-defense forces. Is that basically? Yes, that's basically it. And one of the things that, one of these statistics that often gets thrown around as evidence of Japan's commitment to pacifism is the fact that throughout the post-war period, Japan would only spend, had a cap at 1% on defense spending. But as we said before, the self-defense forces are actually some of the largest, some of the strongest military forces in all of East Asia, uh, second even behind China. So I'm curious, how much does Japan actually spend on defense spending? And what does this tell us about the relationship between the U.S. and Japan in the post-war period? Yusuke, can you tell us more about that? SCF is the second biggest force in East, East Asia in terms of defense spending. But if you look at the spending relative to its GDP economic scale, the picture is totally different. According to the World Bank, Russia and China and uh, G7 countries, including Japan, Russia spent 4.5% uh, of its GDP, and United States, come at the second, uh, spent 2.5% of GDP, and Japan spent only 1% of its GDP. So what is the implication about this? The public experience of the past militarism is one factor. 
Another is Article 9, uh, the Constitution, as Jerry before explained. The relationship with United States is also important to understand the funding of SDF. US has several bases in Japan, and Japan is actually protected under the umbrella of the US force. I personally would argue that US base work as cost-cutting tool for Japan. But since Mr. Trump became a president, he eagerly persuaded traditional allies to spend more to reduce US spending. Before he became president, he publicly said that if America were attacked, Japan can sit home and watch Sony television. And Mr. Trump uh, called traditional allies free riders. Since Prime Minister Abe took power in 2012, the budget for defense spending actually increased. Why is the budget increasing? One reason is emergence of China. And second reason behind this is that U.S. gradual withdrawal of its force from international issues, reflected by famous statement by former President Mr. Obama, United States is no longer world's policeman. So how much money does Japan actually spend on the self-defense forces? Japan spends approximately 46 billion D, but keeping in mind Japan is the, the third largest economy, Japan spent uh, 1% of GDP, and it's, it is actually increasing by 7.2% from 1997. So as you said, in response to some of Mr. Trump's complaints, Abe, the prime minister of Japan, is increasing spending. Even if it still falls into that 1% threshold, 1% of the Japanese GDP is enough to make it the second largest military in all of East Asia. Now, speaking of Abe, one of the things we keep hearing about Abe in the news recently has to do with Article 9, and particularly about Abe's attempts to revise Article 9. So what actually would an Article 9 revision entail? What does Abe have in mind? Jerry, do you have any ideas? Sure. In my personal opinion, I think that Abe's revision of Article 9 is merely a symbolic gesture because I think it's not necessary for him to do such a thing because before his attempts of revisiting Article 9 and try to revise it, there are already several attempts through reinterpreting Article 9 to enlarge the capacity of the self-defense forces. For example, the Cabinet Legislation Bureau, the CL, attains the power for releasing official interpretation of the Constitution. In 1957, the interpretation of the right to self-defense was further reinterpreted to include several things, including the protection of Japanese citizens in foreign soils and such. And in 1962, there are a further reinterpretation of protecting Japanese ships in open water. There's even a further reinterpretation by one of the cabinet ministers, the Minister of Defense, in 1970s who said in lines that if a missile base has been spotted by Japan, which is aiming on Japanese soil, Japan attains the ability to self-defense itself by sending fighter bombers to bomb that missile base before it could fire a missile. 
And so this is this new understanding that Abe and, and Mr. Obama came to in 2015? Yes. The revision of the Article 9 came during the Obama administration and the Abe administration when Obama administration requested the Abe administration to revise the Article 9 t- so that uh, Japan could take more responsibility as the U.S. traditional ally in East Asia and to counter the growing threats of either Russia and China. And so we get this term collective self-defense, and this is what this is what the agreement has in mind. Yes, the agreement has in mind including the term collective self-defense into Article Nine. But in fact, uh, the term collective self-defense was already recognized during the 1952 San Francisco Security Treaty. The clause number one already said that recognizing that they, they, which means the United States and Japan, have the inherent right of individual or collective self-defense as affirmed in the Charter of the United Nations. According to the Japan Times in 2018, 61% of people in Japan said they oppose changing Article 9. 50% of people say they oppose changing the Constitution at all. Yusuke, can you tell us, in your perspective, what does Article 9 mean for people in Japan? You might say, for some people, Article 9 is somewhat central to the very identity of post-war Japan as this pacifist nation. Yes, Article 9 for Japanese people means the protection against return to the past militarism. And... Also, we are the only nation to uh, get atomic bomb in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So Article 9 means not only statement against possession of the force, but also it means protection of uh, pacifism. Mm-hmm. Right, protection of pacifism, we might say protection from a return to a more type of aggressive militarism that... We also saw, you know, with Japanese forces going around East Asia and committing atrocities there, in addition to the death of civilians on the Japanese home front. In your, I mean, when you talk to people, say, in Tokyo on the street, you know, what's the impression of Article 9? Do, people in your circles, when you have these discussions, hey, what do you, should we change Article 9? You know, what's the kind of popular opinion that you've come across? I personally would argue that the young people more and more lose interest in Article 9. And also, since 2011, after the disaster of Tohoku, many young people more and more sub- become supporters of a conservative party. And although many advocate groups, such as SEAL, against the change of the constitution, actually, I saw some survey by, for example, Nikkei. The young people actually becoming more supporters of conservative party. And perhaps as a result of this humanitarian role that the SDF plays, this might be one of the reasons that its popularity is increasing. Some critics might also say that another reason that support of the SDF is increasing is the way that the SDF has been able to brand itself and advertise itself. Now, Jackie, you did a little bit of work on this. Can you tell us some of the ways that the SDF advertises its activities around Japan? Yeah, absolutely. The self-defense, especially the Japanese ground self-defense, they put themselves as more or less only for defense. There's no offensive capabilities. Although they have bought some attack weapons like fighter jack for civil operation. But especially when you look at the triple disaster in Japan, the Operation Tomodachi, this is a very friendly world. There's no offensive or patriotism. 
So the self-defense source labeled themselves as we are peacekeeping force, not an army. We help our people, we help the world, especially like the effectiveness on dealing with natural disasters earns a huge recognition from especially the United Nations. And that's why like the self-defense force nowadays does not really raise that much controversial discussion because of this labeled. Actually, on the official website of Self-Defense Force, they have posted a lot of videos about military practice and also recruiting people of Japan to join the SDF. And when you watch the videos, it is very much similar to some sort of the army capabilities of offensive, like the tanks firing, the artillery firing, the fighter fighting over the sky. But when you look at the subtitle or like uh, the slogan on top of the video, it's not very patriotism. It's very much, we need more people to defend our homeland. That's it. We need more people for rescue operation. We need more people to join the SDF. So it's not a bad thing to join the SDF. It doesn't mean that you embrace militarism or something like that. And also during one of the Airsoft Defense Force commercial, the whole commercial is only about one minute and 30 seconds. It's just showing that two fighter jets flying the sky with all blue sky, just all freedom, flying around, doing whatever they want. And in the end, there comes a text that basically seems like it is very cool to fly in the sky. Please consider joining the Japan Air Self-Defense Force. So it's not exactly the soft message we get of humanitarianism. In, in fact, tanks firing, jets flying around, ships sailing around sounds like a pretty bona fide military in there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you. Thank, thank you very much. much.